0: Are you recording now?
1: (laughs) This is gonna sound weird.
0: Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. If you know this, slide in our DMs on Instagram. Did Van Gogh have syphilis?
1: Yes. I yeah. I want to know. I've heard that. I've heard that it's a theory. I would like to see if we could confirm it um on this podcast maybe. I
0: have I have also heard that I think it was Mozart died of an std um i can't remember which one maybe he didn't <laughs> die of it but he had it because oh. um, i remember so a little fun fact about my life i uh in middle school and high school took orchestra so i played the viola Nerd. You know, like, okay. <laughs> i sent. i you know i since you know can't play a lick you know i don't know why i invested seven years of my life into that but here we are. And you know, your teachers always have a lesson on different mm-hmm. like composers and musicians. And we did one on Mozart and how he was kind of a kind of a player. Ooh, you know? So he was like he was like the bad boy of classical music. I guess he would like wow, you know, these women with his his fast fingers <laughs> on the keys and they'd just be like, Oh yes, take me away with your powdered oh my wig. God. Um, so he, and so, um, we, I remember we talked about it when my teacher wouldn't tell us what it was, and this girl was like, oh, it's gotta be the thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's what she I said. I like, I doubt, I don't I mean, I feel like I doubt. back
1: in the day, a lot of people probably had an STD. Like, I would almost say more likely than not, you would have one, if I were being honest.
0: I guess. But the more you know, Mozart... Hot. boy, So hot.
1: <laughs> uh, well, welcome everybody. If you have made it to about the two minute, 30 second mark, this is a podcast called This Is Gonna Sound Weird.
0: Yes, it's a podcast where we talk about all things, true crime, paranormal, you know, odd history facts, odd facts about my Mozart. life.
1: Mozart... Whether or whether or not he may have had an STD. Uh, we're cultured. Talked about a composer and an artist. Both artists. Different mediums, I guess.
0: hmm This week, um, a medium that we are discussing <laughs> is that of Lifetime movies. <laughs>
1: yes. S-
0: some may say the best art form. I love it. <laughs> Oh, I've been listening. I've been watching Lifetime movies since I was, you know, a wee child. Oh, me
1: too. Always on Sundays with my mom. That's probably why I had so much anxiety as a child because I watched a lot of movies about people getting kidnapped, murdered, stalked, just all of the above. And then immediately after, we would probably watch Extreme Home Makeover when undoubtedly somebody's house has burnt down from a fire every single time. (laughs)
0: Or, uh, American Home Edition, they would always do, like, their house was blown away by a tornado or a hurricane. I remember, you know, this was the early 2000s, so everybody, their house had been washed away by by Mm -hmm. Katrina, and growing up at the beach, I was like, ooh, we gotta move inward.
1: There was, there was a time in my life where I had a chair next to my window. So I had an escape plan for fire. I kept a chair next to my window that was piled high with clothes. And my window, the air conditioning unit was outside of it. So if the house ever caught fire, I would grab all the clothes in my <laughs> chair and jump onto the air conditioning unit and out the window. So I wouldn't have, you know, no clothes to wear and I would be safe. So, I was really planning ahead um, that probably, in hindsight, wasn't something a child should be uh, thinking about every night before she goes to bed.
0: No, but they conditioned you as a small child to believe that. I distinctly remember every single year of my childhood, a fireman coming to our elementary school and telling us that we, me- we, we, the five-year-olds, needed to have a plan for what we was going to do when your house Inevitably, burst into flames. And, you know, um, <laughs> they and so I like our we'd have to go home and uh, have a sit down discussion with our parents about you know what's our safety plan, where's our meet up spot, you know. I was like, I only <laughs> ever had one friend
1: whose house caught on fire, uh, and she wasn't at home during the fire catching, so you know her plan it was useless at that point. <laughs> also, did you ever get those? Yeah. Uh, like like a camper. And they would put you like in the top of it. And then they would pretend like it was on fire. And then you'd have to like crawl down the steps. And oh my God, the first time we did that, I saw like there was a little uh, balcony on the camper. And I thought in my five-year-old brain that we were going to have to jump off the balcony to safety from the fire. (laughs) That was traumatizing for me personally. It smelled like cotton candy because I'm pretty sure it was just a fog
0: machine. Yes, I remember that. Uh, I think that is why to this very day, before I leave the house, I have to double, triple, quadruple check to make sure that my oven is off, my coffee maker's off, everything has to be unplugged, mm-hmm. even if I don't use it. Like, I probably flutter my hair once a month, if that, and yet I'm still walking into the bathroom right before I go to work, and I'm like, oh, is everything unplugged? Mm-hmm.
1: I just put mine up under the counter. If it's on the counter, I had to check, so I'll put it up under there and go worry about it. Sometimes I will still check though, just in case it crawled out and plugged itself in.
0: I'll be checking the oven, even though why the hell would I be? Anyone have been using the oven at seven in the morning? Know.
1: You never know. All right, shit, cut on by itself.
0: Burn the whole building down.
1: Enough fire talk. We might be scaring the
0: listeners probably well this week's theme is uh based off a lifetime movie so i'm gonna let you go first taylor i'm eager to to hear what you have to say about the topic i'll do it so
1: i'm doing my uh story on colleen stan or colleen stan i think it's colleen not completely sure um I think I heard somebody say it that way on something I was listening to, but let's be honest, that's probably not right. But the movie, the Lifetime movie that it is based on is called Girl in the Box. So I'm going to be completely honest up front, I did not watch the entire movie, Uh, I did not have time, but in my defense, I have read half of a book on this, like a book that Oh, yeah, a book that her, like, attorney wrote, and I-, I talked about it a little bit. Anyways, my sources were allthisinteresting.com, Wikipedia, uh, the page that's kidnapping of Colleen, Colleen Stan, that's a little bit of a spoiler, <laughs> crimeandinvestigation.com, the girl in the box movie, and then I'll probably pepper in some, uh, little facts that I remember from when I read that book, and it's called, uh... Uh, it's called The Perfect Victim. I'm showing it to Sydney. You, you um, listeners at home can't see it. Anyways, to the story. So, it's May 19th, 1977. 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking from her home in Eugene, Oregon uh, to get to her friends who lived in California because she was going to go to a birthday party. So, you know, Sydney's birthday was yesterday. This could have been me hitchhiking the 30 minutes to Sydney's house. <laughs>
0: You know, you could have done that, or you could have just maybe dr- driven your own car.
1: No, I don't have one. Just kidding, I do. It's a Subie. She's very pretty. Anyways, so, but Colleen was an experienced hitchhiker, apparently, uh, so she wouldn't get, I guess she did it a lot, which, you know, it's the 70s, so I guess a lot of people did it a lot, but she apparently, she would get into the car with people that she didn't know, but she wouldn't get into a car with anybody that she thought was, like, untrustworthy, so, that day, she actually had, you know, a few people had stopped to pick her up, and she was like, no thanks, you know, she probably didn't tell them they seemed sketch, but there was a few people, she was like, eh, I don't really want to get in the car with you, but then uh, this blue van pulled up and was going to pick her up, and it was Cameron Hooker, and she felt safe to get in their car because um, it was Hooker, his wife, and their baby. And so, you know, when, when there's family in the car, you feel a little bit more safe. I would be more comfortable mm-hmm. getting in that car than just, you know, like a truck, a random truck driver's car. So, after uh, the hookers picked up Colleen, they drove for a while uh, and they stopped at a gas station. And while they were there, Colleen went in and used the bathroom. But while she went was in the bathroom, she kind of had like a bad feeling and she was like, you know... I don't know about this. She said, quote, a voice told me to run and jump out a window and never look back. But then she was like, you know, you're overreacting. Whatever. It's fine. So she went and got back in the
0: car. No, you got to trust that good instinct. Mm-hmm. So after about an hour and a half. Even if, it, even if it's wrong. You, you just <laughs> even go if it's trust wrong.
1: It. You could find another man in a blue van, I'm sure. It's the 70s. There's plenty of them. But after about an hour and a half after she got back in the car, uh, her fears came true because Cameron drove the car off the main road and down like a little secluded road like off the side. And when they stopped on this road, Colleen was threatened with a knife, gagged, bound and placed in a wooden head box. So it was a box that was placed around her head and they said it weighed like 20 pounds. So like. That's pretty heavy to be holding up with your head.
0: It's like Um, a metal box, you said? It
1: was wooden. And it was designed to prevent... She couldn't see any light through it. She couldn't hear any sound. And there was no fresh air entering it. So it was just, like, stuck on her head.
0: That's like... Have you ever seen uh, Saw? Yeah. That's what that reminds me of. Like, the box on the head.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So, you may be wondering, how how did we get here? Who are these people? What what the hell is going on? So, Cameron Hooker is 23. And when I read the book, I don't think I realized that he was quite that young. Uh, but anyways, he was 23. He was a lumber mill worker. And he was married to a woman named Janice. And she was only 19. Um, and the couple at this time didn't have, like, the best of sexual relationships. So pretty much what had happened were that the couple decided that they were going to target a young woman and kidnap her. And both Janice and Cameron had come to an agreement that Cameron could capture a slave um, that would take Janice's place in their sexual relationship um, because Cameron had these intense fascinations with sexual bondage. Um, and up until this point, Janice was having to, um, act out these fantasies with him, and I guess she didn't like it, because he could get pretty rough, and she wasn't really into that, so they reached an agreement that Cameron could get a sex slave and take Janice's, quote, place, but according to the agreement, there was to be no, like, penetrative sex with the person they kidnapped, because um, I guess Janice didn't want i don't know him really cheating on her i really couldn't say um but this original understanding of what was going to happen it changed later on um clearly cameron has no self-control so now we have this agreement and that is why they decided to kidnap colleen so after they kidnapped her they took her to their home in red bluff california and when they got her to the house, uh, they led her down the stairs into their cellar, and they strung her up by her hands, suspended basically from the ceiling, and they blindfolded her. And Cameron physically attacked her, which would include being beaten, electrocuted, whipped, and burned, all while oh, she's shit. literally like hanging from the ceiling, like almost in like a like a star position, like in like the middle of their basement. And the weirdest part was that when they brought her home the first night, and I think they did this more than once, while she was, like, strung up in the basement, she was blindfolded. Cameron and Janice would have sex with each other in the same room while Colleen was, like, hung from the ceiling. Um, At first, they just forced her. Did she
0: still have the box over her head?
1: At this point, she didn't. They took the box off. I'm pretty sure they took the box off, but she just had, like, a blindfold on. Um, But it said at first she was just forced to either watch or hear Cameron and Janice having sex. Um, But later, and they they would abuse her, and then they would have sex around her. But Cameron started shifting, and he started to rape her. Um, And this continued in the torture and abuse of Colleen. And while she was being held captive at the home, she was kept in a small locked box, similar to like a wooden, it was like a wooden coffin, basically. And she was kept in it for 23 hours a day. And the box was kept up under the hooker's bed. So they legitimately went to bed at night and slept on top of her. But she was in a box underneath the bed. Um, And she was allowed out of the box one hour a day. And when she would get out, she was allowed to eat, but she would be sexually abused by Cameron or just abused in general and then placed back into the box. And they were able to keep her so secretive in this box that the hooker's two young daughters did not even know that Colleen was living in the house with them. And the weirdest part was that they knew who Colleen was because sometimes, I guess, the hookers would use Colleen to babysit the kids if, like, they couldn't. So, they found a way to, like, introduce Colleen to the kids as their, like, babysitter. And then they would put her back into the box. And the kids had absolutely no idea that she was living in the house in a, in a freaking box. Oh, my God. So, obviously, being kept in a, a little tiny-ass box uh, for 23 hours a day is terrible. But Colleen said that the worst part was that Cameron convinced her to believe that he was a member of a satanic organization called The Company. Colleen was told that The Company was a powerful organization who watched her and also was able to watch her family who, I can't remember if her family lived in California or Oregon, but they were able to watch like her parents and like siblings because they had their home bugged with like, you know, spy equipment. So Cameron pretty much convinced Colleen that any attempt to escape or like misbehaving would cause the company to harm not only her, but her family because they knew like what they were doing. So in January of 1978, Cameron was able to convince Colleen to sign a contract that would place her into slavery forever with the company in exchange for some additional privileges, uh, i.e. getting out of the box. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Colleen was like, I mean, I'm stuck in this either way. Either way, I'm stuck in a, either a box or I'm stuck as a sex slave. Um, so she decided she was going to sign the contract. And when she signed the contract, the her name was changed to just, k like the letter k and she was forced to call cameron master and she wasn't allowed to speak without permission so it was like a master slave relationship that he was trying to create um apparently cameron was like obsessed with this um french erotic novel from 1954 called story of o which had like a similar.
0: Oh, um, <clears throat> yes, I have i I've heard of it. I have never read it. I have not but actually it's, heard of it. Uh, I have heard of it, but it's like when people compare, like Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh-huh. They're like Fifty Shades of Grey is nothing like what like a master, you know, submissive uh-huh. situation is. Well,
1: I guess this story is um, a very intense version of the Fifty Shades of Grey. And if uh, this current story I'm telling you is any indication of how the book is, it's going to be pretty rough, I would say.
0: hmm.
1: So, you know, at this point, Colleen had signed the contract. She had signed herself over to be a sex slave. Um, and so Cameron was allowing her to have some more freedom little by little. And eventually, he was even allowed her to go out work in the garden. She was able to go jogging, uh, watch the family's children. And he even allowed her to go visit her family briefly. Uh, The first time that he allowed her to go visit uh, was in 1981. And she went by herself. Well, he went, like, with her to the location. But she went to her family's home by herself. And when she got there, I guess her family didn't consider her like missing or i guess at this point or maybe i honestly the whole family story is kind of fuzzy but basically the family thought she had joined a cult and Uh it was kind of reinforced because when she got there they said she was wearing like homemade clothes she didn't have any money and she hadn't been communicating with them but they assumed she was in a cult honestly she may have been Told by Cameron to say this what happened, and I'm sure while she was while she was there, she was acting happy and like normal, you know, because she couldn't say she was been kidnapped because she thought that this company was going to hurt her family. But the family didn't press the issue of her being in a cult. They weren't like, oh my gosh, you need to get out of this cult, like this is bad, because they were afraid if they pushed too hard, uh, that they were gonna push her out of their lives completely. So she was just, they were just kind of happy that she came to see them um, in the whole time. That
0: is so banana pants to me because, not because they were like, oh, we don't want to push her away, but your, your child has been missing, like straight up missing for a certain period of time. Like, I feel like I don't answer my dad's call because I'm at work and he leaves me a voicemail, call me back. And then calls me three more times until I'm like, yes, I am not dead. Thank you. Well, like when somebody,
1: like when somebody joins a cult, at first the family generally knows like where they've gone. Like if I'm going to go join a cult, I'm probably going to be like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to join. Let's just say it's like a hippie commune. That's kind of a cult. I'm going to be like, I'm just going to join this hippie commune. I won't have no phone. I won't be able to talk to you. Bye. So then at that point, okay, maybe if they don't hear from me for a really long time, Now, my family personally would probably come be knocking that cult door down and being like, get out of there, please. But if they really were, like, worried or really thought she was in a cult, I guess they, you know, not communicating with her isn't weird, which we know that's not weird. People in cults typically don't communicate with their family. And after a while, you know, you just kind of have to get used to it. But the fact that she just kind of disappeared one day... (laughs) That's
0: yeah, like, she she went from, I'm going to a, a my a friend's house party. for a bit. I'm going to a birthday party. Doesn't show up to the birthday party. And then, like, falls off the face of the earth. That is a little... Honest. Yeah. I mean, unless... <laughs> but, I don't... I don't know. Uh, if she was, like, more of a free spirit and, like, kind of had a tendency to kind of, you know, just, like, yeah. go with the flow. I'm like, she freaking disappeared y'all
1: which like I think that the book probably goes into a little more I honestly can't remember I haven't read the book in quite some time but I don't remember the specifics um because yeah you would think if she disappeared they would have police out searching for her like this would have been a whole thing but either way it wasn't a big thing so the day after she saw her family for the first time she actually went back to their house again And this time, she went with Cameron and introduced him as her boyfriend. And while the family was, like, while they were visiting with the family, her, like, mom or dad actually took a picture of them together. And they looked like a happy, like, normal couple. And her family was still, you know, kind of like, I guess it sucks that she's in a cult, but, you know, whatever. We'll just, we don't want to push it. And so... She left with Cameron and went back to his home. Uh, so, when, like, also during this time, Cameron was forcing uh, Colleen to help him build a bigger and better accommodations in the home. It was like an underground dungeon they were kind of building. And it was supposed to house more slaves, which I think was just, like, another way for Cameron to reinforce to Colleen, like, this is real, like, this sex slave and company thing is real. Like, you're helping me build for more people to come. Now, nobody else actually came, but, you know. In the book, they do a really good job of, like, explaining more of what he would tell her about the company. Like, it goes really in detail. But being honest, I didn't finish the book because it goes so much in detail. It got slightly redundant, in my view. Um, but it also was in one of those 50% off bins. So I don't really know. My dad got it for me. One time for Christmas, I was like, hey, I like true crime. Okay, so this is funny. I told him I like true crime, right? So he gets me this book. I'll post a picture of the book's cover on Instagram. So he gets me this book. Um, It looks... And he got me another one. And honestly, they look like... The cover looked like a shitty, like, just book you find at Walmart, and I told him, I was Mm -hmm. like, I told you I wanted this book to be a real story. I was like, I don't need no, like, shitty retelling of something. And he was like, it said true crime. The section was true crime. Uh, Sean was right. It was true crime. It is a true story. I did shit on him that Christmas for getting me a book that I thought was subpar.
0: (laughs) Yeah, based off of the cover, you know, like, when you're at a yard sale, Uh, And they have like all of the shitty romance novels, yeah. And like, 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 and it's like fifteen hundred James Patterson books. Yes, see, that's that same energy.
1: Which, like, this one didn't look as bad as the other one, but the other one was like dancing and dying in Las Vegas with like a picture of like a what a dancer's <laughs> leg or something and I was like this is not true crime and it was well I haven't read that one but honestly this book covers that pretty good it's got some pictures in the center of it anyway anyways that's enough about the book sorry dad I really enjoyed the book you got me I still haven't read the other one I don't have time yet anyways So, at this point, Colleen had freedom kind of to do what she wanted. You know, not completely, obviously, but she was not being kept in this box. Like, she was able to go outside. She was even able to, like, jog in the neighborhood. But she was terrified to even attempt to make an escape because she was afraid of this company so much. Um, But even though Colleen never made any attempts to escape or really do anything out of character, Cameron started to get, like, paranoid, I guess, and he thought he was giving her too much freedom so he decided at this point he was going to put her back in the box and so he put her in the wooden box under his bed 23 hours a day and she remained confined this way from 1981 to around 1983 or 1984. so like three or four more years in the box and so at this time the kids were like where's Kay you know she'd been babysitting them taking care of them and so Cameron was just like, oh, she had to go home. Uh, in reality, she was still in the box under the bed being tortured. And she said that she was forced to lie completely still and silent like all day long. And I'm not sure. I don't know if the hookers had like air conditioning or anything like that in their home. Because they lived, I think they lived in one home and then they moved to like uh, a trailer And I feel like back in the 70s, at least, or early 80s, most people just had, like, maybe a window unit or two. My grandma still doesn't even have central uh, heating and air. So she said the box could get upwards of, like, over 100 degrees while she would lay in it. And she had to, like, pee in it and all of that. It was just, she would have to, like, pee in a bedpan, like, in the box. It's just bad. Uh, But in 1983, things took a turn. Um, because at this point, get this, Cameron decided that he wanted to make Colleen his second wife. (laughs) So instead of keeping her captive as a sex slave, he was like, you know what? I want to marry you. And, uh, Janice didn't really like this idea. (laughs) Um, this is kind of a turning point for Janice as well. Um, so I guess Cameron now, he was like, okay, since I'm going to make her my wife, I got to get her out of the box. So he reintroduced Colleen to the children and he even like introduced her to the neighbors and she was even allowed to get a job as a um, maid at a hotel. But at this point, Janice was like, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. So she confessed to Colleen that she had been brainwashed by Cameron and tortured by him sitting pretty much from the time they had started dating uh, and that she was only really able to survive in the relationship because she was like, really in denial apparently she was really able to like good at compartmentalizing things in her brain which i'm like we all do a little bit of that but not to that level (laughs) and so by 1984 janice was just really she was done and so she went to colleen and uh she wanted to help colleen try to escape so she told colleen she's like look cameron is not a part of this thing called the company But, oddly, she still maintained that the company did exist. Cameron just wasn't a part of it. And I'm like, at this point, why don't you just say this shit's fake? I don't really get that part. Um, But I'm being honest, uh, Janice, I don't think she's quite so innocent in all this, but, well, she's clearly not, but. Well, she's not. (laughs) Uh... So at this point, you know, Janice is going to help Colleen escape. So basically what happens is that one day Janice was able to get Colleen to go to a bus station. And now this part's a little fuzzy. And if you want to look up more details, this is what I saw most places. Um, so Colleen went to the bus station and she called Cameron and she let him know. She was like, I'm escaping. And apparently (laughs) when this happened, he reacted by bursting out into tears, I guess because he was sad because at this point he wanted to marry her or whatever. And then she just like caught a bus and went home. But Janice asked Colleen not to tell anyone about what happened to her because she was convinced that Cameron could be rehabilitated and Colleen abided by this. And she even continued to call Cameron regularly to talk to him after she, like, went back home. Stop. And so, uh, but about after, like, three months, I guess, of Janice really trying to um, rehabilitate Cameron, she realized that he was unable to be saved. And so she reported him to the police.
0: She said, "You know what? I've put I've put in some good work, but it's time for you to but go." Yeah. Now, this point is odd. I
1: didn't really look further into this because
0: the police didn't
1: really it didn't really nothing really came of it. But Janice initially called the police to say that Cameron had kidnapped, tortured, and killed someone named Marie Elizabeth Sponhake or Sponaki, um, who had disappeared in 1976 but the police were never able to locate the body um, and they were never able to press charges because I guess there's really no evidence. But the investigation quickly uh, led to the police investigating, obviously, the kidnapping of Colleen, which I was like, Janice, why didn't you just start with that? Couldn't say I don't know if he actually killed that other woman or not. Uh, The police were never able to find any evidence, so that was just kind of odd. Uh, So at this point... Cameron was arrested and he was charged for sexual assault and kidnapping using a knife. And at the trial, Janice testified she agreed to testify against Cameron to get full immunity. So Janice got off completely scot-free. Like, is it scotch-free or scot-free? I couldn't say.
0: Uh, I think it's scot-free. Sc- well, she scot-free. got off.
1: Uh, even though she was clearly involved in some of this, um, she pretty much... Did not have to face any penalties.
0: Damn.
1: Yeah. I guess to the prosecutor, it was better to have Cameron put away for as long as possible and to get the most information in in exchange to allowing Janice to hang out in the world. So, what happened to Colleen was described as a, quote, unparalleled in FBI history. And this was in part because during the trial, Colleen was like slammed by a cross-examination because the defense tried to portray her as a willing participant in this sex slavery because for a part of her time, she was, quote, free. But in reality, she'd been brainwashed into thinking, you know, she was a slave And the book Mm -hmm. goes into more detail on the whole brainwashing thing um, because it was written by, um, I think it was written by the prosecutor, potentially. I can't remember. It was written by an attorney. And basically, they were talking about how hard it was going to be to be able to prove like brainwashing in a courtroom because on the surface, they would be like, how can she say she was held captive when... He let her go get a job and like jog around the neighborhood. Like, why didn't she just run away, you know? So that was difficult for them to get past. But the tactic did not work uh, for the defense because Cameron Hooker was found guilty and given consecutive terms totaling a sentence of 104 years. Uh, in 2015, he attempted to get paroled but was denied parole and it will be a minimum of 15 more years until he's eligible for Pearl again. Um, And as a result of Colleen's confinement in the box, she suffers chronic back and shoulder pain, which how could you not? And by the time she finally escaped, she had been held captive in Cameron's home in this box for seven years.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. Uh, but she eventually did get married. She had a daughter. She did have to go through extensive therapy, obviously. She joined an organization that was committed to helping abused women. And she was able to earn an accounting degree. And both Janice and Colleen changed their names. And they both continue to live in California. But it said they have no contact
0: with one another. And I was like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <clears throat> they didn't ride off into the sunset and they're they are they're not part of a book club together. No.
1: And so Janice, got, not Janice, Colleen kind of talked about, like, I guess people are you're like, how did you stay so resilient, like, through this time? Like, how did you make it? And she said that, quote, I learned I could go anywhere in my mind. You just remove yourself from the real situation going on and you go somewhere else. I mean... That's a good thing to say, but I don't think I could have done it. I don't think I would. uh, I don't know what I would have done.
0: I'm too extroverted, so the thought of (laughs) not being able to talk to anybody for 23 hours a day would just, I couldn't, it couldn't be me. No.
1: And so, the Lifetime movie, based on Colleen's story, I set it up top, it's called The Girl in the Box, and it was released in 2016. I watched part of the movie. It's pretty dark, pretty gruesome um clearly based on the story I just told you um and the book that I was talking about was called The Perfect Victim written by Christine McGuire and Carla Norton if you want to find it in your uh, discount bin at your local garage sale it's actually a pretty good book even though the cover doesn't make it look as such so that was my story thanks for listening
0: thank you for that Uh, I know. I remember when you got that book for Christmas, so I have heard a bit of that story, but I had never heard the full story before.
1: Uh, It reminds me of Disney World. That's odd to say, but I read it on the way to Disney World for the very first time. (laughs) So that was fun. A
0: little little different, a little different, but interesting fact nonetheless. (laughs) I also didn't realize it was a Lifetime movie. I, didn't that's, either. I mean I mean Lifetime movies they are pretty dark but it's also cable TV so I'm like how fucking dark can it get?
1: Yeah, honestly, when I started watching it, um, it was a lot. I actually don't think I will finish watching the rest of it because I it really was making me uncomfortable. And I like, you know, like True Crime, but I think just the way that they kind of portrayed Cameron made him just he was just like an asshole, like straight up which clearly he was, but when I read the book I kind of pictured him more as just like a I don't know, you'll have to watch. you'll have to watch it. It's um they portray him interestingly, I don't know if that's how he actually is or not, but I just picture him as kind of a loser, but they kind of tried to portray him like a cool guy who was just an asshole. I don't know. He's all of the above. Every every bad adjective is what he was, so
0: He but he's not cool at all. No well wow. thank you for
1: that you're welcome um hey guys this is eric and jessica carrier the hosts of the Prairie Land paranormal podcast
0: if you're looking for a show that explores all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling historical research relevant science and witness accounts
1: check out our show online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player
0: my story this week is the murder of Kirsten Costas.
1: I do not know it.
0: My sources, Wikipedia, and I specifically used the Wikipedia page for Friend to Die For and the murder of Kirsten Costas page, as well as Eleanor Neal on YouTube and Murderpedia. So. Kirsten Costas lived in, I believe it's Orenda, California, which is just east of Berkeley. And Orenda is like a very privileged part of California. Pretty much, you know that town that like nothing bad ever happened uh-huh. until it did. <laughs> so, yep. so her parents were Arthur and Barrett Costas, and her family was the picture of an ideal american family the parents were well off and kirsten was popular throughout town her and her brother attended miramount high school where kirsten was on the varsity swim and cheerleading teams as well as the school's yearbook committee so she was pretty you know pretty active in school mm-hmm. i envision her to be kind of like the girl next door okay
1: I'm picturing it. it. Sounds like a lifetime movie so far.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm painting this picture. So the <laughs> school had a, a club known as the Bobolinks, which was kind of a, a sort of sorority for the high school. So it was a group of the school's best and brightest female students. And basically, if you weren't hot shit or didn't come from an affluent family, you just were not going to be asked to join. They had pretty high standards. I don't know exactly what they did uh, other than just be like rich. Well, you know a girl that
1: was in our actual sorority in college said that where she came from, they had like a sorority in high school as well. And I had never heard of that, but I'm gonna be honest, it sounded kind of wild. It was more wild than a college sorority, if I'm gonna be honest.
0: Oh, yeah, because I feel like in college, people don't realize this because you hear so much stuff on the news, but like in a college sorority there are so many rules mm-hmm. and restrictions you couldn't get away with shit but i feel Absolutely like in high school not. if it's if it's not really affiliated with the school lord yeah. knows what could happen for
1: real i would not be a member of a high school sorority i was like never even invited to a real party in high school so like if that tells you anything about me in high school <laughs> Actually, let me scratch it. I said I've never invited to a real party. I was never invited to any party, okay? Other than, like, my best friend's birthday party.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we didn't have any sororities in my high school. Um, We just had the band. Now, I did hear that band hazing was something, but we ain't gonna get into that. Yikes. Also... I just want to say, my computer sounds like it is going to take flight. It sounds like <laughs> a jet airliner right now. So if you can hear like a nice little hum in the background, I do apologize. I will try to edit it out, but I just want to be upfront about that. <laughs> uh, so basically at the end of every school year, the Boba would invite new members to join for the following year. So they would have some sort of, I guess, like introduction dinner you know, come on down. So it would make sense that Kirsten would be invited to this, this club, seeing as she was pretty much just exactly what the club was looking for in their members. You know, she came from a good family; she was well-rounded. So on June twenty-third, nineteen eighty-four, Kirsten accepted an invitation to a new member dinner for the Bobolinks. Later that night, Kirsten knocks on the door of Alex and Mary Jane Arnold, who lived nearby where the dinner was taking place, and she told them she needed help, that her friend had gone weird. Oh, so, so, Kirsten uh, tried to call her parents to see if they could come pick her up, but they weren't home. And, I mean, this was the 80s, so mm-hmm. it's not like anybody had a cell phone. So, the Arnold's offered to drive Kirsten home, and when Kirsten got out of her car and began walking to her front door, a blonde girl ran up behind Kirsten and began stabbing her in the yard.
1: The
0: fuck? So, the Arnold's at first thought this was a fist fight of sorts. um, until the person ran off and left Kirsten bleeding in the yard, and then they realized, oh, no. Mm. So, Kirsten's neighbor heard the commotion and ran out and called 911, and Kirsten was rushed to the hospital, but would later die of her injuries as she had been stabbed five times. Mm. Now, at the time, police had no suspects other than Alex Arnold, who had been the man who had driven Kirsten home that night. And he was the only person that was out there and had seen what had happened. Uh, And when Kirsten's neighbors had run out to see what was going on, he was obviously, like, right next to her. And Mm. she was- she was bleeding. She couldn't tell them what happened. However, Even though he was a suspect, they really couldn't hold him on anything. They really didn't have any evidence to say, yes, he did this, so they had to let him go. However, Alex did recall a pinto following his car to Kirsten's house that night of the murder and seeing a blonde girl run off. So he was able to tell him that, but I mean, that really wasn't as helpful as you would think it is. You know, oh, a blonde girl in a Pinto, because it was the 80s. (laughs) Pintos were a very, you know, a very popular car. Also, they live in California, so every girl is going to be blonde.
1: Yeah, that's not very, not very helpful. Like, there'd be these days, a blonde girl in a Subaru. Every every blonde girl drives, everybody drives a Subaru these days.
0: Is this true? Uh, And also, he wasn't able to give them a license plate number. So, you know, without that, they were like, well, that's a whole bunch of nothing. So the news of the murders breaks and the town is turned upside down. Because nothing like this happens in a town like Orenda. And police contacted members of the Bobolinks all of whom confirmed that there was no initiation dinner planned for that night, leading police to assume that somebody had called Kirsten about a fake meeting in order to lure her away to kill her. And uh, they weren't really able to, like, trace any sort of phone calls because, again, it was the 80s. So even if they were like, oh, yeah, somebody called her and said, come to dinner tonight, they would have no way of, you know, tracing that back. So police start to go around and question some of Kirsten's classmates to see if any of them had motive to hurt her. One of the suspects in the case was Nancy Kane, who was a former friend of Kirsten's. Nancy had been a part of the popular crowd at school at at one time. uh, But as, you know, she got older, she began to distance herself from Kirsten. But not only did she distance herself, she kind of became the polar opposite of what Kirsten is, if Kirsten is, you know, the popular preppy girl, then Nancy was the kind of grungy alternative girl mm-hmm. which really there's nothing wrong with that, but it's you know the 80s and if you were kind of grungy or alternative or liked wearing dark clothes, you know, that was probably that was seen as kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So she, she was, was a suspect. She was ahead of her time. However, Nancy uh, was with her boyfriend the night of the murder, uh, and so she was cleared once her alibi checked out. Mm -hmm. So at this point, six months had passed since the murder, and police had questioned over 300 suspects and were still coming up empty-handed. So the FBI was brought out to assist them. The FBI built a profile of their suspect and determined that the killer came from a large Catholic family and was most likely friends with the victim—or friendly with the victim. So they screened Kirsten's classmates with the FBI profile, and it matched with Bernadette Prati. And Bernadette and Kirsten were in the same grade. They were both in a lot of the same clubs and sports. Bernadette had even attended Kirsten's funeral, so many were surprised when she was brought out for questioning. But Bernadette passed a lie detector test, which I mean, today mm-hmm. we have learned a lot about that. You know, y- yeah. that doesn't really doesn't really hold up. Also, if she is, I believe, is it a sociopath? They can they can know. pass a lie detector.
1: Yeah, because I mean, isn't it? It's based on like your body's like response right like to these questions so I don't know if, you're, if your brain doesn't connect
0: <laughs> yeah and if somebody doesn't feel anxiety yeah. then their body's not going to react that way
1: I think I would fail a uh, lie detector test just because I'm always filled with anxiety i just be so anxious I'm sitting there I would probably get like inconclusive results every single time I took a lie detector test I could just see it happening to me
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. They'd be like, can you take a lie detector test? I'd be like, no. It's just, y'all gonna convince me that I've done something I haven't. I mean. True. <laughs> when I go to the airport, even though I don't own a gun, I never have owned a gun, I will be I will be going through security like, oh, my God, what if I accidentally have a gun?
1: I do that. You know? I do that, too. So. I'm worried that they're just gonna, I'm gonna have like a bottle of lotion or something, and they're gonna snatch me up for it. They did actually do that to me one time. The bottle, the lotion didn't even, there was barely even any lotion in the bottle. He made me, okay, this was so dumb. The man was like, he went to dig in my book bag. He was like, is there anything in here I should know about that could hurt me? I was like, oh, I think I have a razor in there. And he looked at me like I was dumb. He was like, a razor, I wasn't talking about a razor. And I was like, bitch, I don't know. It's got like a pointy edge on it. Turns out he wasn't going for the razor. He was going for an almost empty bottle of lotion that had been in my book bag for going on four years.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I I guess he knew that you don't you put lotion on those hands. He looked at those cri- he looked at those crispy knuckles of yours and he said, This has gotta be a bomb. This bitch ain't never put lotion on. <laughs> Am I wrong? Uh they're better
1: today than they were last week. I used to I did have a giant gash on my Knuckle right here, but as you can see, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. Anyways, we're not talking about my no. like crosseyed hands. Let's move on, please.
0: <laughs> no, we're talking about Bert- we're talking about Bernadette's alibi, uh-huh. and er- uh, and Bernadette did have an alibi for the murder. Uh, the night of the murder, she claimed that she was babysitting. Mm. However, after police, you know, went to go verify the alibi, they found that the family that she claimed to be babysitting for, they said that they had not used her as a babysitter in over two years. Mm. So they were like, well, she fucking lying. Yeah. So uh, Bernadette's family also owned a Pinto, which was the same type of car that Alex Arnold had remembered seeing the night of the murder. Yeah. And Bernadette was also a blonde girl, you know, matching the description that Alex had recalled seeing... Kirsten be stabbed by.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And at this time, you know, it was pretty clear that Bernadette was guilty. However, police still didn't have enough evidence to arrest her. However, FBI agents questioned Bernadette rigorously, and eventually while at home, Bernadette wrote a letter and gave it to her mother. And in the letter, Bernadette confessed to everything. She basically went home one day and just walked up to her mom and was like, here you go.
1: Oh, God. If I was that mother, I would be like, I can't. I can't do this today. I cannot do this.
0: <laughs> Please. So Bernadette was jealous of Kirsten and, because it seemed that no matter what she did, Kirsten was always getting what Bernadette wanted. Kirsten was on the cheerleading team and the yearbook committee, two clubs that Bernadette had been rejected from. Mm. And Kirsten came from a wealthy family and could afford clothes that Bernadette couldn't. Coming from a large family, Bernadette often got hand-me-downs, which that makes sense because she was, I think, one of six. Uh-huh. Look,
1: hand-me-downs and second-hand clothes are all the rage today, honey. Just wait. Just
0: chill. Uh, I know. She was, again, before her time.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: I love it. I, my favorite thing to do is when someone asks me, oh, that's so cute. Where'd you get it? I go like, it's thrifted. Same. It's just like, I'm like that bitch when I say it.
1: I know. My mom hates it when I say that to people because she, she's like, she's like, every time I ask you where you got something, you either say you got it for like a dollar at Walmart or you got it at a Goodwill. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, deals are fantastic. You got to tell people yeah. about this.
0: I don't want to. Bra- I'm not going to brag and say I paid it full price. I want you to know I got it for seventy five percent off because I feel like that's that says something. I know mm-hmm. how to has- hustle a deal.
1: I mean, if I'm wearing the only thing expensive I wear is like a pair of shoes. I'm not going around talking about my, you know, wearing a pair of boots. Be like, yeah, these cost me three hundred dollars. What about it? <laughs> I ain't I ain't gonna do that. That's wild. Who?
0: Why would you want to do ki- that? Listen, I got to keep the lights on, oh. so I need, to, I need to keep the clothes budget low. For real? So, Bernadette had planned to take uh, Kirsten out that night and befriend her, uh, but once Kirsten arrived and realized that there was no initiation dinner, she got freaked out and the two girls got into an argument, and that is when Kirsten ran off to the Arnold's house. So Bernadette claimed to have found a kitchen knife in her car. She claimed that she often used that knife to cut vegetables and that that was why it was in her car in the first place. And Bernadette's older sister actually would testify in Bernadette's defense, (laughs) stating that, yes, she often carried that knife around to cut vegetables. However, you know, (laughs) much like you and me, Kirsten's family did not believe that this was the case because, I mean, who the hell carries an 18-inch kitchen knife <laughs> no. with you at all times? I mean. Also, you you got, how many vegetables do you need to chop on a go? I know. Honey, have you ever heard of a meal prep? Honestly, Just prep them bitches later.
1: Like, I have a spoon in my car, but that's because I ate uh, oatmeal out of it this morning all the way to school. But I ain't got no knife in my car. And if I did have a knife, it would be like a butter knife, not a butcher knife or something to... Cutting vegetables, I ain't cutting vegetables in my car. I ain't cutting vegetables anywhere except for the comfort of my own home.
0: <laughs> no, I have my I have my reusable cutlery, but um, they're plastic. Yeah, so they're just... it's just a little plastic spoon, a little plastic knife, and a little plastic fork. That I take with my lunch every day.
1: Yeah, that story don't add up to me.
0: <laughs> so, uh, but rather. Bernadette, they, so they, they thought that Bernadette had intended to kill Kirsten from the start. Mm-hmm. And during the trial, testimony revealed that Kirsten, or sorry that Bernadette craved social acceptance and resented Kirsten's uh, uh, popularity and success. Bernadette also took to the stand where she confessed that she felt inferior to the social active Kirsten and claimed that she was embarrassed that her family did not have as much money as other oridons uh, which is the people that live in Orindia,
1: oh.
0: California, and said that the Costas, which is Kirsten's family, had made fun of her, quote, crummy clothes at a ski trip once. But honestly, I didn't see any like, evidence to support that Kirsten repeatedly bullied Bernadette. Now, you know, if if she made fun of her at a ski trip saying, you know, your clothes are looking raggedy, was that nice? No. You know, that, that wasn't – that was uncalled for. Do I think she should have been stabbed to death for it? Also no.
1: No, I'm absolutely not. Look, in high school – We've all said something nasty, probably about some clothes somebody was wearing. I'm sure people have talked shit about my clothes. Uh, you know, it just it just happens. You're in high school or whatever. But, yeah, that does not mean you should murder somebody because they say, you know, your Bobby Jack shirt looks
0: whack. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Trust me. Uh, you can change as a person. And if you, you know... When you're a kid, you say some mean shit, but oh, Lord have mercy! Don't I? I would not like to go back to high school. Although, if I was gonna go back to high school, I would. Uh, I would just like to stay in my AP English class. I would not like to leave that classroom at all. I would just—that was my safe space. I would
1: never prefer to go back to high school. You know, it was just. I just did I did not thrive there. Which honestly is good. They say don't peak in high school. If you're in high school and you're listening to this, don't worry about it. Do not peak in high school. Don't worry about being the most popular. None of that. Your time will come. You just gotta wait for it. I don't know if my time's come (laughs) yet, but it's working on it. It's better than it was then. Don't peak until you die. (laughs) You never have to go down at that point. My peak, I'm gonna be like eighty at my peak. I'm i I'm steady climbing. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to be like Betty White and not peak until Hell my 90s. Yeah. Or you just go to the peak and you just plateau. You just stay. You don't go back down. You just stay.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, so Bernadette was sentenced to a maximum of nine years at Youth Authority Venera School. However, seven years later, in 1992, she was released on parole at age 23. Mm. And a parole examiner described Bernadette as dangerous and possessing a hidden trigger that anyone can pull. Basically, he says, this bitch is going to blow up. It doesn't matter if you're the mailman or her next door neighbor or her husband. You know, she's just going to pop off on you immediately. And and they let her out on parole? Yep. They said, all right, we're just going to send her out. uh, So, she is out to this, she is out to this day. Um, She's been out since 1992, so almost 30 years. Uh Uh, And this story was adapted by Lifetime into a film called A Friend to Die For, starring Tori Spelling and Marley Shelton. And the movie premiered in 1994 in the United States as well as in the UK under the name Death of a Cheerleader. So -hmm. some people might have heard it from different names. And the movie became a cult classic and was recently remade in 2019. So that is the story of Kirsten Costas.
1: Thank you. After you started telling it, I feel like I've heard of it before. But I don't know if I've watched the movie, which I very well could have watched the movie, or if I've heard of it on another podcast or both. But yeah, that's a wild one. That is just like, that is just, that seems like a quintessential Lifetime movie.
0: Yes. Perfect little quiet town. You know, nothing bad happens until your, you know, your classmate kills you over jealousy. It, yeah. A Lifetime movie is always going to be uh, best friend kills, dad kills, husband kills. Mm-hmm. Which is honestly why Do- the story- Doctor sells your organs in yeah. the black market.
1: Which is honestly why when I found the story that I covered as a Lifetime movie, I was like, honestly, kind of weird. It don't really fit the mold of what I would typically consider a Lifetime movie. It was just like a regular old true crime movie. No, you know, no special relationship. But yeah, I need now. I want to go watch the movie that you're talking about. What was it? A friend to die for?
0: Yes, and you can find it on YouTube. There's nice. several links to it, or you can look up "Death of a Cheerleader." I was originally going to do "Willing to Kill," which is uh, the Texas cheerleader story because Mm. i could have sworn that that was a lifetime movie but upon research no it's an abc film and i just you know i didn't want to go too off script but you know i'll probably cover that eventually because i watched that again way too early in life Mm -hmm. probably watched it at age eight and was like yes this is great
1: You know, I forgot my original task that I was going to set out to do for this episode, which was to find a a Lifetime movie where the Santa Claus was a killer. Um, But maybe one day, maybe one day in the future I can locate that.
0: Maybe next week. No, (laughs) actually not. not next week, because next week's theme is disappearances.
1: Dun, dun, dun. I have no idea what I'm gonna do. I don't really know too much about disappearances. I don't usually look into like disappearance cases.
0: No, I don't like it because there's not a lot of closure. I know. That's why Spoiler I Spoiler alert, there's probably not gonna be a lot of closure next week. I know.
1: True Crime Garage does a lot of disappearance cases, so I might go through and see what they've covered, see if anything strikes my fancy.
0: Uh follow us on Instagram.
1: And gonna sound weird pod... You can follow us on Twitter. It's just going to sound weird on Twitter. That's it. We barely post on there, so honestly, don't worry about it. (laughs) Uh, You can join our Facebook group. Um, You can just look up, this is going to sound weird in the little search bar. It'll show up, I promise. Um, I posted something in here the other day that wasn't a meme. It was actually... This is
0: true. This is true.
1: uh, You can send us a weird story to our email... Which is this going to sound weird at gmail.com. And I promised it in our Facebook group, so I'll promise it here. If you do, I will send you a koozie personally from me yeah. or from Sydney.
0: Or from both of us together. Or mm-hmm. from text. You know, we're willing I'll to do. A, I'll put a dog hair in there for you. <laughs> One
1: may accidentally slip in.
0: You should also rate review and uh us on Apple Podcasts really helps us out. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm gonna take it I must take it a step further. If you can prove to us that you have shared our podcast with someone, a coworker, a friend, a foe, I'll send you a koozie. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Share this. Share this podcast so, please. Word of mouth is like the best way for that's the best way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it could be something as simple as sending them a link to one of our episodes. Mhm. Screenshot that. Send it to know. me. Oh. Let a hoe know. We will see y'all next week. Yep. Well, you'll you'll hear us next week. Mhm.
1: We won't see you. We won't we won't hear you either. You'll just hear us.
0: But until then, have a good week, everyone. And stay weird. Goodbye.